Hey, my friend, I hope you're holding up well. We're doing good here in Wyoming. Um, I guess this is as good a time as any to tell you that Lisa and I are moving. Um, we're going to be moving to Nebraska uh, soon, in about two months. So um, that's a long story for another episode, but uh, for those of you who are used to hearing me say, I live in Wyoming with my incredible wife, Lisa Warren. Well, she's still incredible, but we are moving to Nebraska. So look forward to sharing that story with you on an upcoming episode. George R.R. Martin is the guy that wrote the novels that uh, Game of Thrones came out of. And he has a quote, A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, but the man who never reads lives only one. If you've been listening to my show or reading my letter or my books for very long, you've probably figured out by now that Lisa and I are serious readers. In fact, every odd-numbered year since 2015, we've issued a challenge to my newsletter subscribers to read a book every week. In most years, in fact, I read one or more books every week, and for the last couple of years, I've done that mostly by listening to audiobooks on Audible while I work out. From a neuroscience perspective, reading is very good for your brain. It helps your memory. It helps your mind. It just makes you sharper. Um, That's why the average CEO reads something like 80 books every year. Um, Smart people read. Reading makes you smarter, and it's a smart thing to do to read books. But in my reading, I try never to get more than two books away from God. Um, In other words, I like to read a spiritual book, something that helps me spiritually, and then a business, investing, personal development type book and then something lighter or just for fun, and sometimes I read fiction. If you've read any of my books, you'll know that I tend to write narrative nonfiction. In other words, my books are true stories, but I write them like novels because I want them to be compelling and want you to keep wanting to read them. In the process of learning to tell stories, though, I had to read a lot of books about how great works of fiction are constructed. I had to read a lot of books about writing And in the course of doing that, I read a lot of novels. I wanted to see how good novels are put together. I wanted to see how bad novels are put together. And I actually wrote a couple of really bad novels that are in a drawer somewhere that hopefully will never see the light of day. But I do intend to publish a novel someday. But up until probably four months ago, I would have said, and I did many times say, that I thought the most well-built, almost perfect novel that I'd ever read was The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. That's a funny thing to say from somebody like me because I generally hate horror. I don't like horror movies. Um, I don't like to be to pay somebody to scare me. Uh, I think life is scary enough without <laughs> paying somebody to scare me. But a book that I read about writing suggested that Harris's book, The Silence of the Lambs, was a classic of the fiction genre um, and, and described Harris as a master of the elements of fiction, point of view, character development, and the very hard task of writing a villain that you can still somehow empathize with. That is not an easy thing to do. So I thought Harris's book was out, actually outstanding in terms of how you put a story together. But a few months ago, Lisa and I went to the local bookstore, Wind City Books. Our friend Vicki Berger here in Casper runs this beautiful little shop. And I'm always telling you, by the way, to support your local booksellers. You really need to support your local booksellers. They're at an incredibly unfair disadvantage compared to some of the big online retail giants who actually sometimes sell books below their cost just to get your other business. So local bookstores are a treasure, and we need to support them. But Lisa and I walked into Wind City Books, and Vicki was standing there, and she had a novel in her hand, and she immediately lit up when she saw us, and she said, Lee and Lisa, you've got to read this book. 
And she handed me a copy of a book called The Beekeeper of Aleppo. The Beekeeper of Aleppo by someone I had never heard of, Christy Terry. So I looked at her bio, and it says this. Brought up in London, Christy Terry is the child of Cypriot refugees. That's an unusual sentence, right? You don't often read that somebody from Cyprus became a refugee and then had a child who writes novels. So I kept reading. She's a lecturer in creative writing at Brunel University. The beekeeper of Aleppo was born out of her time working as a volunteer at a UNICEF-supported refugee center in Athens. Now that got my attention too, because our niece Madison Gombard, now Madison Marin, married Matthew Marin, and they both are missionaries and have worked, and their their life's work really is in helping refugees and uh, displaced people find their way. In fact, you heard them on a recent podcast episode. So Matt and Madison's work has become dear to us, and that this uh, book kind of caught my attention because it's about refugees, right? So um, the beekeeper draws on Christie's personal experiences of getting to know those people who are escape, uh, escaping harrowing war-torn regions. And everything in her book, dark or beautiful, her bio says, has come directly from real people that she has met. Now, I, we obviously bought the book and we took it home and I set it on a on the desk and didn't read it for a while, but then I got around to it. And when I started reading the first few pages, I was just drawn in not only to the words, but to the beauty of how she put this book together. And then I decided and I noticed that the book the audiobook was narrated by someone other than the author. And that got my attention too, because this book is told in first person form from the point of view of a man named Nuri, and so obviously the the audiobook needed to be narrated by a man, and I downloaded it and listened to it, and I just want to tell you that this is probably the only book I've ever said this about, but I think you should read it in print form and listen to it in audio form, so I'm, I'm advising you to buy it or check it out from the library in two different formats, and there's a reason for that. Art Malik is the narrator of the audiobook, and his voice is perfect. He 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 just is the character Nuri, and it's it's a beautiful audiobook on its own, stands alone as a beautiful audiobook. But in print, there's some things that you'll miss in the way that Christy Left Terry put this book together that you just can't see when you're listening to it. She uses a very unique um device that I've never seen before where when she's going to change the time frame that Nuri's so so Nuri's in a present tense and then he's going to think about something in a past tense and the story goes back and forth between multiple timelines and every time he does that he ends one page with a word and then she starts the next page with the same word in a different context and that's it becomes the way that uh, she signals that these time changes are happening. It's it's almost subconscious when you read it, but you can't hear that in the audio form. And it's just, it's beautiful on the printed page. So I, I, I would just advise you that you'll get a lot out of this book if you listen to it or read it, but you'll get more out of it if you do both. The book's about refugees. I did a sort of mini review on an earlier episode of the podcast before the COVID-19 crisis broke out. And I talked about how Beekeeper grabbed me because it's one of those transformative books that changed my perspective on an issue. There's other examples of that. The the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I read it before the movie was being made. And it's about capital punishment. It just changed my whole perspective on that issue 
from from one way of thinking about it, the way I was raised, an eye for an eye, that sort of thing, to a whole different perspective that I'll leave to you to to read. But you should read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. On a spiritual level, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. I've talked a lot about and written a lot about how much that book transformed me spiritually and how important that book is if you're wondering uh, about God and His character and His nature What's So Amazing About Grace is one of the books that you really need to read. And Philip Yancey just changed my whole heart and the arc of my life with that book. And probably the other one, um, another example of this transformative type book would be The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. It really changed how I thought about the process of being a creative person and and the hard work of, of bringing new um, ideas and and projects to the world um the art of war i'm sorry the war of art by stephen pressfield it's worth reading but when i first read the beekeeper it 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 hit me at that time that it was about refugees and it changed my thinking on the matter and again i had an interest in in this issue because of my my niece madison and my nephew matt um but it changed my thinking I, i used to think about refugees and that whole crisis as a a social problem, a system problem, a political problem about governments and and religion and all those things. But Beekeeper transformed my thinking on that and changed it from this big political problem down to a concern about a single tragedy faced by individual human people. But then I read it again recently. I read it during the COVID-19 issue, and it dawned on me that the book's not really about refugees. It's really about hope. It's about that thing that drives you to pick up and move from one place to another, either really or um, or sort of metaphorically in your life. It's about the journey that we're all on. It's about how we all need hope. It's about how we're not sure right now how long this journey will last or where we'll end up. And we're not even sure how far where we end up is from what we've always known. And I thought, you know... There's just no more perfect topic for this podcast right now than hope, this journey that we're on, and the idea that we really desperately need to be able to have hope that we're going to come out of this on the other side in a solid place. So I reached out uh, to Christy Lefteri through Twitter. Didn't expect to hear from her. She's quite busy, as the book has been enormously successful. In fact, since we've since we recorded this interview, um, Christy was announced as the winner of the 2020 Aspen Words Literary Prize, which is a very big deal. Um, and I just reached out to her on Twitter, and lo and behold, a few days later in my inbox, there was a message, and she graciously agreed to come onto the show today and talk about hope and talk about the beekeeper and talk about writing and all of those things. So I am very excited to you uh, today, my friend, to introduce you to my new friend, Lisa's new friend, the author of my favorite novel, and I think probably the most well-constructed novel that I've ever read, Christy Lefteri is here with us on the podcast today. She's going to help us find hope, no matter what we're facing, and she's going to help us start today. Hey, I'm so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Wyoming, soon to be Nebraska, with my incredible wife, Lisa Warren. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And we're here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get that done. You can get the show notes and more on my website at wleewarrenmd.com. That's wleewarrenmd.com. And if you like the show, 
please subscribe so you never miss an episode and share it with your friends so they can find out about it too. The podcast was downloaded in 74 countries last week, and I'm really thankful to have you listening. Help other people find it by sharing. Thanks in advance for that. Check out WLeeWarrenMD.com for everything you need to know, including the show notes and links to Christy Lefteri's work. This is the Dr. Lee Warren Podcast, where we're changing our minds so we can change our lives. We've got Christy Lefteri, author of my favorite novel, the international bestseller, Beekeeper of Aleppo, with us today. Let's get after it. Hey, friends, we're back with uh, I'm a super special guest. I'm very excited to have uh, my current favorite novelist, Christy Lefteri, here with us today. Hi, Christy. That's really kind of you to say. Well, I, I've told you uh, how much I love your book, and I'm, I'm really grateful. I think people are going to love hearing from you today, so thanks. It's wonderful to be able to speak to you here from London. Yeah. How are things in London right now? Well, it's just crazy at the moment, you know. Um, we've been, I think it's been two or three weeks now that we've been in the lockdown, and I can't see an end to it at the moment. Yeah. Things are a little bit scary. The NHS aren't coping very well. So yeah. we're all trying to do our bit by staying home and, you know, helping out the neighbors if they need any, <laughs> you know. Yeah, everybody's going a little stir crazy. Exactly. It's, yeah. uh, I can't think of another time in my life. I'm, I'm 51. I can't think of another time when everybody in the world was going through the same thing. I can never think of Isn't I, that something? I, this is something I could never even have imagined, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I was thinking about it, and it, it sort of links because I think, you know, when I started to write The Beekeeper, um, I I remember kind of like the reason I, I ended up starting to write it in the first place because I went to visit my dad in um, Cyprus, and, and he lives on the east side of Cyprus that faces Syria. Yeah. And I remember sitting there, in April of 2016 and looking out across the water and thinking, my God, I'm here and I'm on this beautiful beach and I'm safe. And yet just across the water, there's a war going on. And I felt so frightened for those people. But yet at the same time, it felt quite distant, even though it was just across the water. Yeah. It was someone else. It was somewhere else. It was a different country. It was a different religion, a different culture, a different, you know. And and then I thought, well, just above me, north of me, is the line that still divides the island of Cyprus, which was divided after the war in 1974. Right. And, you know, and then I imagine sort of back in 1974, my parents were refugees. So they would have been experiencing not, not the same as what the people in Syria are going through, because every war is entirely different. But um, something similar in the sense that they were displaced, they were scared, they lost relatives, they lost friends. My dad was a commanding officer of that war. And I was thinking about that while I was sitting on that beach that day. And again, I thought, and yet that's confined to the past. Yeah. So the war that was happening in Syria was confined to a different place. And I could, although I could empathize, I was still safe. And then the war that my parents had been through, that was confined to the past. Yeah. So although, although I, I lived in the shadow and the trauma of that war, I still felt that it, the distance between me and that war was time. And yet now I know this isn't a war, but now we can't, we can't say it's somebody else. It's somebody else in another country. It's somebody right. else in another lifetime, in another time period. 
it's another culture, another religion. We can't say there's another. It's everyone. Right. You know, and I think that's that's something that we've never, ever been able to do, ever. It's always somebody else that's suffering yeah. unless, you know, unless we happen to be the ones that are in that war, that particular war or that particular disaster, right. or, you know. You know, like what happened in Australia. We were watching it. It was horrendous with the fires. Right. But yet, you know, it was somewhere else. Now right. there is no somewhere else. Yeah, we're so, all in this together, yeah. Exactly, yeah, this is the thing. And I just hope that this, I don't know, I hope that this brings us together in some way, you know? I think it, it will, yeah. Differently. I think we're starting to, um, I think everybody's starting to feel that. Like, how can we redeem this time and come out of it in, in a better way than we went into it, yeah? Yeah, exactly. I don't think we can go back to the past because I don't think that was a good place to be. There was so much wrong with what our society and yeah, division our divisions. And, yeah. I'm not, I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying that it's all going to, it's, a, you know, things are going to suddenly change, but I just hope that things change a little bit. That, yeah. That's my hope. Yeah, so we get something good out of it. Well, yeah, even though what's going on now is horrendous, I just I do hope that we can all you know, we can learn from it and come together in a slightly different way. Yeah. Hey, tell us um tell us a little bit about your you, you mentioned you ref, you referenced your parents were refugees and and you've mm-hmm. spent some time in refugee camps and tell us a little bit about your your background and how you became a writer. So, uh like I mentioned before, my my parents were um um they were refugees. They became refugees after the war in Cyprus in 1974, um, and they made them their way from Cyprus to London. So they settled in London, and I was born in London after the war. Um, so 1974, I was born in 1980. Now, my dad was a commanding officer of that war, so that's a huge responsibility, as you can imagine. Yeah. So he was he was very traumatized, I think. I don't think he realized. I don't think there was time to think about it back then. Because when they came to the UK, their their objective was to integrate, to settle, and to find security, safety, jobs, place to live, you know, um, after they'd lost so much and after they'd been through so much. So I think what happened was that the traumas were there. And I so I just, I felt like I sort of grew up in the shadow of that war and those traumas, which really affected me. So um, I was always trying to ground myself by writing, I guess. It was always the thing I turned to. Um, So anyway, my dad lived in Cyprus for 40 years. My mum passed away 10 years ago. And uh, he decided to go back to Cyprus to live in Cyprus. And that's, that's how I ended up going back, visiting him and sitting on that beach. And, wow. and it was at the moment when I had all these thoughts about what was going on in Syria, about my own parents and what they had been through, that I then decided that I wanted to help in some way. But obviously I couldn't go to Syria because right. it was too dangerous. So I thought, well, what can I do? What what skills do I have? I could speak Greek. Um, I'd worked in schools with children before. So I ended up in Athens working in a women and children's centre. And so um, what happened then? Like, did that influence um, your decision to write this book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. So um, the Women and Children's Centre was a safe place for women and children who were coming from the camps in Athens. 
So there were there were well there were quite a few camps, but the main ones at the time were Linigot, which was the old airport. It was an abandoned airport, and it was used as a camp for refugees. And also the old school. So again, it was an abandoned school. Um, and also Bedion Duarreos, which I mentioned in the um, book, which is a park. Just before I arrived, the refugees were apparently I didn't see this, but they were all over the streets, and then the military came and moved people into these camps. Mm. Um, so the there were there were no showers in the camps. There were um, the the conditions were really bad. I mean, I visited the old airport and the old school, and the conditions. I mean, especially at the old airport, the school was better. In the school, they they allowed only families in there, mm. so it was just a slightly more peaceful place. They did kind of um, um, theatre performances in the evening of people oh. telling their stories of how they got there. I've got I took some wonderful photographs. They were in Arabic, but I could so feel, you know, I could feel the emotions of these performances at the old airport. It was a bit worse because it was bigger. There were more people. It was stuffy. I mean, it was in the middle of the summer, so it was really hot. Um, there were, again, like I said, there were no showers. So the women and children would come to the um, to the center from the camps every day, and there was a place for children to play. There was a place where they could have warm showers. We didn't have a, a food license, so they were we could only offer them tea and biscuits. Right. But that tea and biscuit routine became such an important routine. Because I got to know who wanted the chocolate biscuits, who wanted the plain ones, who yeah. wanted milk in their tea, who didn't. And, you know, these things in life are so important. We don't yeah. realize how important they are until we lose them. Right. So we became a place where people could come and develop friendships, develop a routine, feel safe. Um, there was a there was an area for uh, new mothers that had just given birth. Wow. So one of the babies... I named Afra after him. He was a little boy with the male version of the name. Yeah. And uh, his mum, when she, you might recognize this, it might sound familiar. His mum wasn't producing any milk because mm -hmm. she was so traumatized. Yeah. And she, um, she, we didn't know what to do because the baby wasn't really accepting the formula. He was having a little bit, but not too much. And he was so tiny. Mm. And, All we could really do was sit with the mother, give her biscuits, give her milk, give her tea, talk to her, hold the baby while she had showers, help her with the baby, encourage her to talk to people. And I remember she was so beautiful. She had these blue eyes and she wore this blue hijab. And day after day, we watched her and we were there for her. And eventually, and I remember the moment she was pressing her breasts And we realized that she was producing some milk. Wow. So if you remember in the story in yeah. Bedion Duarreos, which is the park, um, there's a woman who experiences a similar yeah. thing. Yeah. And I just remember that moment where the little baby he was feeding and he started to open his eyes more and he started to interact uh. more. And he was the cutest, most beautiful little thing. And I thought, gosh, what world has he been born into? Yeah. You know, and so I named Afra after him. I've never been able to, I haven't forgotten any of the children, really. Um, so, and I, at that point, I just thought, God, I was so overwhelmed with emotion. Yeah. And I deal with things normally when I'm overwhelmed by wanting to write. 
And I thought, well, maybe I might want to write about this, but I wasn't entirely sure. So what I did was I decided to interview people, not at the centre, but in the square after work. So I'd ask people, I might, I say to them, I might write something. I'm not sure yet, but I might do. Would you be willing to talk to me? Can you tell me your story? And people that could speak English were really willing to talk and tell me their story. Yeah. So I got the experience of being in the camp, but also the experience of listening to people. That's a beautiful story. Um, it, you know, when you talked about your dad and your mom and what they went through, um, it sounds like you sort of based Nuri on some of your dad's experiences, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe I didn't realize at the time. And also, I don't think I, because I don't think it was conscious at the time. I think I was just kind of really into creating this character. Um, but then after, I thought, you know, my dad had this way of dealing with the war, which was simply to not talk about it. And by doing that, it came out in reactions. Right. And I, I always believe because I did a, I was a, I was a psychotherapist for a while in the NHS. I did a psychoanalytic training, and I could see so much when people didn't talk about their traumas, and me included. We end up acting them out. We That's end right. up doing rather than saying. And I think this is what happened with my dad. And and he was really anxious all the time. You know, he had these fears, these these fears that were that were not quite grounded. You know, I mean, right. we all have fears, but they were more than what they should have been. And I didn't realize as a child. And of course, when you're a little girl, you see your dad as the person that knows everything. So. Right. Um, I didn't understand these things until I grew up and I went into therapy myself and started to think about them. Then interestingly, when I was right, I finished writing the novel and it was just about to be published. And I started to write an article for the observer on transgenerational trauma, which basically about how trauma can be transferred from one generation to the next generation. And I took a break from writing that article and I decided to go for a walk. And as I was walking, my dad phoned me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I started writing this article and he asked me what it was about. And I told him and I explained what it was and what it meant. And I remember this conversation I had with him really well because he said, he said to me, oh, you know, he, I didn't talk about the war because I wanted to protect you. Right. Which is the opposite of what, Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and strangely, he just opened up and started talking and telling me all these memories about things that had happened and people he thought he should have saved and situations they'd been in and this time in the van where he knew people were going to shoot at them and he told everyone to duck and they did. And then years later, he met this man who, who'd come up to him in London and said, you know, you saved our life that day. My dad had no idea, you know. But there wow. was a lot of guilt and there was and I remember the walk I was on. I was walking past the park and I walked up into the town centre and I even walked into Clark's shoes for some reason. I wasn't looking <laughs> for shoes. I just remember being there and talking to my dad and listening to these stories. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, wow, well, you know, somehow it took for me to write this book and for me to be writing this article for for this these stories to be shared, which I'd never heard before. And what I found really interesting was my dad said that even now, about 40 years later, he still thinks about that war roughly about once a week, he said. Yeah. So that got me thinking because I thought, well, back in the day, all those years ago, he must have been thinking about it all the time if it's still something that he thinks about on a weekly basis. 
That's right. So I guess that when I guess that fed into Nuri's character, you know, because Nuri can't he can't grieve for his son. He can't allow himself to remember his son. Right. So therefore, he I, I don't want to say too much because it will give too much away, but he he experiences the world based on the things that he's repressed. At that That's time. right. A little bit of an unreliable narrator from time to time. Yeah. Exactly. With PTSD yeah, yeah. and all that. Let me ask you a question about the mechanics of the book. So um, you use a really interesting flashback technique where, you're, where you start the middle part of several chapters with the previous word from the – and every time that happens, you're changing the time setting. How did you come to that? I've never seen anybody else use that device. Well, do you know what it was? Um, so – as it's linked to what we've been talking about with Nuri's character and and it, all the loss that he's experienced and the trauma and the fact that they've lost their son, Nuri and Afra have lost their son, she's gone blind. So he's got all this kind of trauma in his heart. Right. And, and I, I thought back, I know this isn't a trauma as such, but I thought back to when I lost my mum, when she died in 2008. And... I remember after she died, I'd be talking to someone in a similar way to how I'm talking to you now. And, right. and you might say something like, I don't know, blah, 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 da, 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 do you want a cup of tea? And suddenly that word tea would would drop me into another time where I was having a cup of tea with my mum. Right. Or you might have said something else. I don't know. It could be anything like blah, blah, blah. And you say something and suddenly that word took me away somewhere. But the right. person that I was talking to would think I was still present and I was still there. And I was to some extent, but not entirely because I'd gone off somewhere in my head. Right. And I was there with my mum drinking tea and there was a specific memory and it would completely overwhelm me. And right. sometimes I told people, oh, now, you know, I've just remembered. And, and sometimes I couldn't say it. I would just get lost in that memory and I, it would just make me feel awful. Um, and as time went by, it softened and. And then I thought about Nuri and I thought, well, he's lost his son, he's lost his home, he's lost his job, he's lost the bees, he's lost his country. How can I get him to remember this? And how can I use what I learned from losing my mum to help me to find a way to bridge the gap between the present and the past? So I, I thought, let me try. It was an experiment at first. Yeah. Let me try to take the, the last word from the present and see if that can be something that drops him into the past. Yeah, you did it beautifully. It's I'm, I'm going to totally steal that, by the way, so oh, for, really? <laughs> for a future book. I bet a lot of writing, uh, writing students around the world will steal that device, and we'll call it the left hairy uh, <laughs> node or something. <laughs> that was great. So I want to read you a little passage from the first page of the book. Is that okay? I want you to just talk about where where this came from. This just, I, I actually bought your book. I'd never heard of this book. Um, I was in the local bookstore here in, in Wyoming and the owner is a good friend of ours. She's promoted my books a lot. And, and she said, Hey, you ought to look at this beekeeper of Aleppo. And I said, what's that? And she said, just, just check it out. It's really wonderful. And I opened the book and I read, I am scared of my wife's eyes. She can't see out and no one can see in. Look, they are like stones, gray stones, sea stones. Look at her. Look how she is sitting on the edge of the bed, her nightgown on the floor, rolling Mohammed's marble around in her fingers and waiting for me to dress her. 
And you go on and on. And then you say, look at her, because I think she is disappearing. That's why I bought your book. That, that, that passage, I didn't know what this book was about or where it was going, but that got me. And where in, in the world did you come up with that? And it's, it just completely sucks you into the story. But I want to hear your thoughts on it. You know, the weird thing is that I wrote that once I f- almost finished the book. Hmm. Once I got to know the characters. Right. I can't remember what was there before it, to be honest. Whatever it was, I just kind of faded away because it, it wasn't, I knew it wasn't the opening. And as I got to the end of the book and I got to know Nuri, because I get to know my characters as I'm writing, as most authors do. Right. You can plan and plan and plan, but when you're writing, you get to know, and you because you've spent so long with the characters as well by that point. And I just, as I got near to the end of the book, I thought something's missing from the beginning. And I suddenly thought, what is it about Afro? What is it that Nuri is afraid of? And I thought her eyes, it's what she can see. Yeah. But it took me to get near to the end to realize that. So it was a journey that I'd kind of gone on with my characters. So that at the beginning, he he's so frightened. Even though Afra's the one that's blind, he's frightened of her eyes. Yeah. And I thought, that's how I have to start it. Wow. Because when there's so much sadness and so much trauma, sometimes we're afraid of what we can see, of what the other people can see, of... You know, and so I thought, well, that's it. And as soon as I thought of that sentence, I thought, that's it. That's the beginning. That's it. Wow. That speaks to the power of uh, first drafts and, and how we work through things. Uh, we're, not, we're never too committed to our first words because we find the better ones later sometimes. That's great. So I've got uh, the novel that I'm writing at the moment. I know, I know, even talking about this now, I know that that first chapter needs to change. I just yeah. know it, you know. I already know that I need to... But I need to I need to not rush the change. I need to kind of leave it, learn, understand my characters, get maybe closer to the end and then come back to the beginning. Yeah, that's how it works. I mean, I, my uh, my last book, the the editor, like way down at the end at the past copy editing and all at the very end, she wrote and said, hey, by the way. The second to the last chapter needs to be your last chapter. Like that, it, it, the perfect <laughs> right. ending is the second to see, make an ep, make the last one an epilogue or something. But and you you never know how it's going to work out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I see. I don't know how you intended for it to come across, but I see beekeeper as a perfect medical metaphor for hope. How the power of hope can compel us through all kinds of trials. I mean, does that is that sort of where you meant for it to lead people or? I didn't realize what I meant um, until I kind of got really into it. I I, I was just kind of, I I was on a wave in a way, you know, and I kind of allowed it to take me a little bit. I didn't pre-plan. I think for me where the hope is, because this is what I saw when I was in Athens. So um, the men would come with the women, for example. Right. Something happened again. So the, the men would come with the women and drop them off at the center. And then I'd look and they'd be standing outside waiting for their wives or their daughters or their grandmothers or, you know, and and it was that connection that I saw in people. The women would come in and they'd make friendships. The children would come in. At first they couldn't play. A lot of them couldn't play because they were, they were just confused and they didn't know what was going on and they were scared. And eventually you could see that they were learning to play again or they were able to relax enough to play again. And I thought, that's hope. That's hope. Yeah. 
The hope is a child who can learn to play again. And the hope is these women that can build friendships, just like Angeligi builds a friendship with Afra. Right. They'll never see each other again, just like I met people who found each other, but they were, then they were separated because they one was going to one country and another was going to another, but they'd given each other something. Yeah. You know, it's something that they would hold in their hearts. I could see that. And the men that were waiting outside the center, not coming in, and they'd peek through and watch their children play sometimes. Or, And you'd think these connections, the love, and that is the real story, is the story between Afra and Nuri and how they can learn to love each other again. Right. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's where hope lies. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Now, what would you say to folks, um, segueing out of that, what would you say to folks right now when they're feeling isolated, maybe hopeless of what they're going through? Like, how, what do you have? What does Christina Terry have to say to the world about that? We're all in this together. <laughs> it's like what I was saying before that there's, you know, I think when we think about these wars, the war that my parents experienced, the war in Syria or other wars, it's, we, we look at them and we can empathize and we might feel frightened for the people in those wars and we might feel sad, but they're still somewhere else. You know, it's still, we still somehow can look through, you know, at the television or listen to the radio and somehow we're still safe. And I think this is the first time where everybody feels that we are so kind of, it, everything is so unpredictable. There's so much uncertainty. Right. Every, we turn on the news. There's new there's new deaths. We don't know how the how our well in London. We don't know how our NHS will cope. We don't we don't know anything at the moment. How long this is going to last for? When we'll be able to see our friends again? Our family? When we'll be able to hug hug our friends again? Right. And suddenly, it's us. It's not somebody else. It's not on the other side of an ocean, or it's not somebody of a different religion or a different culture. Or it's it's all of us. And I. And I think just knowing that, that we're all in this together, give me, it frightens me, but at the same time, it gives me some strength. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. Now, in addition to being a writer, you're a teacher. Tell us a little bit about that part of your work. Yeah, so I, um, I teach creative writing at Brunel University, which is a university in London near Heathrow Airport, or not too far from there. So at the moment, I, for example, I'm teaching an MA class, or now we're doing it online, yeah. um, or planning a novel. So uh, I have an MA class, and we they have to write an outline and a critical essay, and I help them, and kind of we build up to that. And um, the, the last term, I taught a module called Elements of Fiction. Again, it was an MA module. Other times, I might teach a year one module, a BA year one module, like uh, um introduction to creative writing or introduction to writing drama or I might do a year two module like writing the short story Um, so there's a variety of modules that I teach Um, and also I did a I was once a secondary school teacher before all this before I did my PhD I did because I did a PhD in creative writing at Brunel University before that in order to fund my PhD I became a secondary school teacher. I worked in a secondary school, which was absolute madness for a few years. Yeah. <laughs> and then I left and I decided to be a supply teacher, like a locum that goes to different schools where yeah. teachers are away. And I did that in order to have the flexibility to be able to do my PhD and study and, you know, teach a little bit at the university at the time. 
Um, and I started tutoring, which I still do. So I see students on a one-to-one basis. So not just for creative writing, but for English, you know, for their GCSEs, uh, for their A-levels, for, you know, those kind of entry exams, those kind of things, but right. all in English, not, not you know, English literature. I don't right. teach any other or creative writing. So right. that, that's, that's been my career, really. Great. And your first novel, um, before The Beekeeper, you wrote another novel, right? What was that called? A Watermelon, A Fish, and a Bible. Right. I haven't read that one yet. Yeah. That, that's, so I wrote that quite a while ago. I had a huge gap. So I wrote that in, that was published in 2011, and I wrote that as part of my PhD, ah. Creative Writing. And that's set in Cyprus during the War of 1974. Ah. Um, but I, I can see, I mean, you might be able to see, I can, and I say this to all of my students, that we're always progressing as writers, That's you right. know. And so I, I can look back at the first book because there's about 10 years between each book because I, in those 10 years, I actually went into the psychoanalytic training, worked as a psychotherapist or an honorary psychotherapist in the NHS, realized I didn't want to be a clinician, but then used everything I'd learned to put into my writing right. and went back to teaching at Brunel. So I think I can see from one book to the other how I've grown and how my writing yeah. has grown and how I've changed as a person. So it's quite interesting for me um, to, you know, um, to put those two books side by side because it helps me to see my own journey as well. Right. And Beekeeper has been quite successful for you. Congratulations about that. Thank you. You're up, uh, you're up for the Aspen Award, right? Yeah, I've been shortlisted for the Aspen Award, which I'm absolutely chuffed about. Yeah, well, we'll hope by the time this airs, we'll know if you won it or not. That's, uh, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, I'll find out on the 16th. Wonderful. So there's five of us on the shortlist. Well, we're pulling for you. Thank you. And what's the what's the new novel going to be about? Well, it's, it, it, whenever I start writing something, there's always that feeling, I don't know if you get this as well, where you think, God, is this going to be good? You know, am, right. am I going to be able to? Am I going to be able to pull this together? Are people going to like it? So I'm at that stage at the moment, but um, it's at the moment. It's called Songbirds, okay. and it's it's actually about migration. Um, it's set in Cyprus, um, and uh, it's also about, which is kind of used as a metaphor. It's uh, there's a problem in Cyprus with the poaching of these tiny little songbirds. Mm. They're very small and they can't be shot because they disintegrate. And um, they put glue sticks and things up on the trees. So the birds come down, they land on the glue sticks. The more they try and escape, the more trapped they get. At the same time, Cyprus has a lot of domestic workers coming into the country. And it's kind of at times bordering on modern slavery Mm. because people come in, they're expecting a certain kind of job. They're not, kind of placed and they don't they don't quite find what they were expecting and they get trapped there so yeah. the story deals with this idea of migrants and the poaching of these birds and wow. it's yeah it's i'm i'm just working through it at the moment wow so sort of a metaphor the the birds become a metaphor for what's happening with the people well the, the thing is yeah because there was there was a story that what happened in cyprus last year a few years ago, um, about five domestic workers were missing. Mm. They were from the Philippines or Nepal. And people had reported them. They went to the police and reported them missing. And the police clearly said, we're not doing anything. 
we won't concern ourselves with Filipino women or with mm. women from this background or whatever. You know, they're foreign women. We're not going to concern ourselves with them. So they didn't launch an investigation. They didn't search for the women. Wow. A year later, tourists were going through down one of the dirt tracks at the back of um, Nicosia, and they found a well that had filled up with water because it had just been raining and a body came to the surface. Mm. And they realized it was one of the women that had been um, reported missing. So they launched an investigation and they found the bodies of the other five women and also two children and someone had killed them. Now, this barely happens in Cyprus. The point was that these women weren't searched for because they were foreign and because they were domestic Mm. workers. So what I've done my story is about a domestic worker who goes missing and it's about it's about the police's reluctance the, the the authorities reluctance to search for her it's about the effect that this has on the people around her what this wow. reveals about society and the birds are used as a metaphor wow well we'll look forward to that christy thank you you know it's been a pleasure to talk to you um I, I I think I told you this. We connected on Twitter, and I think I told you the reason I decided to reach out to you is because in, there's been a short list of books in my life that have changed the way I think about a, a big issue. And one of those was Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. It was about capital punishment. Completely okay. changed how I looked at, at that problem. And your book um, – changed how I looked at the refugee issue. I used to think about it in these big political terms and, you know, this big system with millions of people and a big problem. And you made, you made it about one family. You you made it about one man and his wife and his boy and what they were going through. And it, and it just completely wrecked me. And, and I've probably sold two or 300 of your books for you (laughs) because of that. So. Anyway, we really appreciate it. Um, we're big fans. Lisa and I um, are big fans of your work and look forward to what you're doing next. And uh, greatly appreciate your time today, Christy. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me to speak to you. It's been lovely talking. It has been great. Thanks. God bless you. What a great conversation. Christy left Terry very gracious and giving us some of her time today. Listen, friends, there's always hope, no matter what you're facing. If you're displaced, if you're if you're um, country's falling apart, if the world seems to be going crazy, or even if you're just isolated and home because of COVID-19, there is always hope. In this journey that we're on, we don't really know how long it's going to last or where we're going to land, but we do know that we're going to be different when we come out of this. Romans 12.12, in the voice translation, is one of my favorite verses. In fact, it's the verse that I'm using to sign the um, front of the, I've seen the interview copies that I'm, that when I do book signings, Romans twelve twelve in the voice says this, do not forget to rejoice for hope is always just around the corner. And that's how I want to encourage you today, friend. Hope is always just around the corner. Sometimes you find it in a novel like the beekeeper of Aleppo, which is just a beautiful, crushing, amazing book that you've got to read. But sometimes you find it in a friend or an email or uh, a scripture or an online church service. There's always some place to find hope if you're just willing to open your eyes and walk towards the light. Romans 12, 12, do not forget to rejoice, for hope is always just around the corner. Hey, Lisa and I are praying for you. Um, I hope you're praying for us. Really uh, enjoyed my time with Christy Lefteri today, and I would strongly encourage you to go and buy The Beekeeper of Aleppo and do so at your local booksellers, please. Christy Lefteri, um, wonderful conversation and a wonderful book. I can't encourage you enough to read it and look for the hope starting today. 
Hey, thanks for listening. The Dr. Lee Warren Podcast is brought to you by I've Seen the End of You, a neurosurgeon's look at faith, doubt, and the things we think we know, available from Waterbrook Penguin Random House, everywhere books are sold. Don't get tired of me saying it, but please don't forget to support your local booksellers. Subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode, and share, rate, and review my show. That's how more people find out about it. Don't forget to hook us up on the socials at Dr. Lee Warren, at D-R-L-E-E-W-A-R-R-E-N on Instagram. Instagram and Twitter at Lisa D. Warren on Instagram and Twitter for Lisa. We'd love to hear from you. The theme music for the show is Blue Highway by Pottington Bear via freemusicarchive.org and go to wleewarrenmd.com for more information about my letter, this show, my books, and Christy Lefteri's links. Remember, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and you have to start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. God bless you. Have a great day. <laughs>